Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Shami Suryanarian, who's Chief Impact Officer at Harambi Youth Employment Accelerator. The Harambi Youth Employment Accelerator is a not-for-profit social enterprise that's building African solutions for the global challenge of youth unemployment. So we're going to focus a lot of our discussions today on youth unemployment, which we know remains a real wicked challenge for much of the continent of Africa. Shami has a background in this field. She has served as Vice President of Lifelong Engagement at the African Leadership of Academy. For those of you who don't know ALA, our friend Fred Swanica founded that institution. It's been doing some great work to get young African professionals into the workforce. There she oversaw a network of 2,000 young African leaders, managed a number of big programs in partnership with corporations, She's also served as a management consultant, providing advice to the DBSA, the Development Bank of South Africa, to Transnet, Capital Projects, and the government of Mozambique, amongst others. She's a graduate of Harvard University, where she obtained both a BA and a master's degree. Shami, it's a great pleasure to be speaking with you today. I know you're speaking to me from Nairobi. That's right. Thanks, Marcus. It's great to be on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. I'm going to dive straight in, if I may. You've spent your career, frankly, opening doors for young people. You have a real passion, I know, for the problem of youth unemployment and a commitment to finding solutions. I'm wondering what motivated this career choice? Thanks, Marcus. I think the question is a great one. Partly it's personal, but partly it's also seeing the landscape. And a mantra that motivated me quite early on was that talent is universal, but opportunity is not. I was lucky enough to have been born and raised in India and Nigeria, got a scholarship opportunity to study in the United States. As a scholarship student, I struggled myself, but then quickly saw many more people who were as deserving, if not more deserving than I, not having access to those kinds of opportunities and being denied them for various reasons, whether it was finance or exposure, and importantly, institutions that erect barriers due to biases and legacy systems. So I was quite early on fascinated by the fact that talent is in fact universal, we needed to make sure that opportunity actually reached people who deserve them. So from the outset, I spent my early part of my career in education, working in the United States in a couple of charter schools, and then also in a large NGO in India called Pratham, and learned quite early on that it isn't enough for a young person to have skills, a good CV, they would face doors that were closed to them, regardless of kind of the skills and competencies that they had. And in fact, it was systems that actually needed to be changed in order for opportunity to become available to young people. So that was sort of my passion and my motivation, also coming from my own personal experience as a scholarship student in the United States. And I was fortunate to work in many spaces where I was able to open doors for young people. And I think my most formative experience prior to Harambe was at ALA where I helped build something called Africa Career Network to connect young people to opportunities across the African continent. And that really opened my mind to this challenge of youth unemployment because it is a significant one, 
particularly on the African continent. And we see that this challenge needs to be solved by multiple people, multiple stakeholders, not just one organization. So ALA was sort of the starting point, but Harambe really has now created my passion for addressing this issue at scale. Thank you for that, Shami. I think for the benefit of our audience, it would be helpful just to set out the scale of the challenge that we face in sub-Saharan Africa. We have a huge youth population. About 40% of Africans are under the age of 15. One third of Africa's young people between the ages of 15 and 35 years old are unemployed. Less than 10% participate in higher education compared with roughly 38%, I think it is, globally. The statistics compare very unfavorably with other parts of the world. At the same time, I think I'm right in saying that surveys of employers reveal that a good proportion of African CEOs are genuinely concerned about the lack of skills that we have within the African labor force. We know that the time that it takes for those people who have the skills to then find jobs is in excess of what it is in other regions of the world. We have a really wicked challenge in sub-Saharan Africa. Shami, you've worked in North America, in India, and in Africa. And I wonder if you could give us a perspective on how our continent is is stepping up to the challenge, how this compares with responses from from other countries in other regions of the world, and specifically the interventions that Harambi is trying to make in this regard. Thanks, Marcus. You're right. The challenge is a wicked problem. And I think Africa in particular is both uniquely affected by this. You mentioned the youth population, the youth bulge in Africa. Africa is the youngest continent in the world. We'll have the largest workforce by 2030. And that's a huge opportunity. And we see that as Harambe, definitely we see that as potential. However, Africa is also plagued by different kinds of forces. You have decades of jobless growth on the continent. And unlike other countries and other contexts, we aren't seeing similar booms in jobs like manufacturing, et cetera, which could absorb young people as they did perhaps in East Asia and somewhat in South Asia as well. Instead, you have multiple forces at the very macro level. We had the global recession in 2008, which many countries are still recovering from. Then you had the COVID-19 pandemic, which we're hoping to see the tail end of. And many economies are really still experiencing and reeling from these shocks in a way that This means that jobs aren't coming to the African continent in the way that we'd hope. We see graduates, roughly 12 to 15 million young people graduate every year and enter the labor market on the African continent. And a tiny fraction of those, as you've said, get absorbed into the former labor market. But I think on the flip side, we're also seeing that it isn't enough that you work hard, that you get a degree and you can expect to find a job because of these reasons. So in some ways, we're really setting our young people up for failure to Suppose that our previous, our outdated systems of work hard, get a college degree, get experience, you'll find a job. That's just not true. And it's not just on the young people. It is the system's macro forces that are shifting. And so there needs to be sort of a real reconceptualization of what it means to access work and for young people to be visible in the labor market and for barriers to be reduced to them. Because in many ways, Africa is almost a prototype for what we probably will see in the rest of the world. We're seeing some of that in the United States a little bit because of the great resignation, although there's different forces at play there. In the rest of the world, we know that the jobs of yesterday aren't the jobs of tomorrow. So in many ways, young people are being set up for failure because they're in outdated systems, outdated institutions, they're being given outdated advice. And Harambe in particular is trying to address that on a couple of fronts. One is 
betting on jobs that will hopefully grow in the future and absorb young people. We've taken a big bet on the digital and the global business services sector, which means that jobs that were formerly in other spaces like the Philippines and India are slowly coming to Africa. Many people are interested in impact sourcing on the African continent. And these jobs are viable jobs. They're good jobs. I mean, they can always be made better and improved. You don't need a college degree with a few months of training and experience. You can actually do these jobs really well, uh, whether it's call center jobs or back office work supporting global companies. There are other sectors that are growing in this space as well. For example, agri and agro-processing and others like the care and social economy, which absorbs a number of young people, especially in South Africa, and the green economy. But I think the other piece of it that I think is really critical, and Harambe has a decade of experience and evidence in building this set of interventions, is looking at the supply side. You mentioned demand-led skilling. I mean, young people are told to get degrees in outdated fields and qualifications, which may not suit the labor market. So in many ways, young people have skills and competencies that may not be relevant. But on the flip side, some of the skills and competencies that they do have are not visible to the labor market. There's a phrase that I use a lot is that, you know, young people may be unemployed, but they're rarely idle. So it's rare that you find a young person who's not doing something, hustling, trying to find a job, sending out a million CVs, spending money on this. And unfortunately, the labor market just doesn't see the hunger, the, the readiness, the willingness to work and instead privileges other things such as work experience. You see many job descriptions, for example, for an entry-level job, ask for years of work experience. And in fact, that's, that's not required. In Rambe's experience, the first few years especially, where we work directly with employers, employers would ask for qualifications that may not have suited the actual requirements of a job. So in the early years of Harambe, what we tried to do was break down what a job really needed. So if you were a cashier, you needed to undertake quick maths and multiplication. You didn't have to necessarily have good grades in maths. You needed to have a subsegment of competencies that were related to the job that you were doing. And similarly, young people probably had skills and competencies that were not clear and made clear with grades and marks in their school grades. So we had to devise a number of assessments that would help actually tease out what young people were truly capable of in order to better match them to the jobs that existed, all while simultaneously also placing big bets on jobs of the future such that they could actually absorb young people. And Harambe has had a huge amount of experience in this regard. We started out with 40 placements in the, in the first year and this past year with a network of 2.2 million young people enabled over half a million pathways in South Africa and several thousand young people in Rwanda. The bottom line is that systems are shifting, the future of work is here, and yet we have a very outdated approach to both education and employment. And it is important for us to actually look at it from a very holistic perspective in order to break barriers for young people. Shami, that's fascinating and, and really impressive too. You mentioned half a million pathways to employment that you've created in South Africa. That's really impressive. You referenced the work that you do really multifaceted, trying to reform outdated education systems and institutions and to better equip employers to approach the challenge of employment and bringing skills into their workforce. You sit at this intersection, I know, of, of civil society organizations, of industry, predominantly of academic institutions, of the government as well. I know that you work closely with the Presidential Youth Employment Intervention in South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work at this intersect? 
Sure, and I think the nature of the problem is so complex such that it requires multiple actors from different sectors of society to address it. Harambe was founded in 2011, and even then, systems change has been in our DNA and partnerships have been in our in our name and our DNA. I mean, the, the word Harambe is Kiswahili for we pull together. Despite the fact that it's a South African organization, it was a word that was specifically chosen because we knew that we had to partner with multiple sectors of society, the private sector, government, civil society, and importantly, the young people themselves. We, early on, were partnering with the government, the jobs with the Development Bank of South Africa and the National Treasury. Government, even back then, prioritized youth unemployment as an important issue to address with multi-sectoral collaboration in South Africa. Since then, we worked closely with the city of Johannesburg and the Gauteng Provincial Government, which is a powerful economic hub for both South Africa as well as the African continent, I believe has a significant knock-on effect in terms of employment for the African economy, Gauteng province alone. And for the past couple of years, we've been lucky enough to be an anchor partner in the presidential youth employment intervention, as you mentioned, as what we call the National Pathway Management Network. So Harambe, having taken its lessons learned over the past 10 years, now powers a platform called SA Youth, which is a multi-channel platform it comprises a free and a data-free Mobi site, a mobile-friendly website, as well as an inbound and an outbound call center. And the beauty of the call center, just to sort of talk about it for a minute, is it's yes, staffed by young people. So people who are formerly unemployed, young people, we call them guides, and they truly are the backbone of our offering. These young people field calls from unemployed youth in South Africa, provide them with work seeker support and guidance on how to build their profile on these channels on our Mobi site, and importantly, how to access opportunities, but really troubleshooting what it means to be an unemployed youth in South Africa today. And we feel, of course, provide a human touch to what is a very agonizing and anguishing experience. And we all can sympathize with the impact of mental health on being unemployed. And the guides do provide that really important human touch in addition to accessing profiles, building their profiles, connecting them to opportunity. So our partnership with the presidency now is both powering this platform with the inbound and outbound hotline, as I mentioned, and this Mobi site, which processes millions of data points just in terms of accessing young people's profiles to better match them to opportunity. But critically, we aggregate and curate and vet opportunities to make them visible to young people and make young people in turn visible to the labor market. So we undertake matches to connect young people to the jobs that we know exist. We bring new jobs onto the platform as well. And importantly, on a young person's journey, as I mentioned, you know, it's no longer linear. You jump in and out of jobs constantly. So it's about both connecting you to that one opportunity, but perhaps four months later, if that job or contract has ended, you could revisit the site to say, okay, where to next? And it hopefully builds a profile for a young person that over time, accumulates their credentials and ability to to improve their employability so they can access more opportunities and income over time. Very impressive. Thank you. I know that Harambe has just received a, a systems change grant from CoImpact. Tell us about this partnership with CoImpact. We had Rakesh Rajani, Vice President of Programs for CoImpact on this podcast series just late last year. Really impressive, the work that they're funding all across the continent, with a particular gender bent also, I know. We will be going to air on International Women's Day, that's March the 8th, 
the situation in terms of the barriers to work for young women in particular is dire. Tell us about the grants that you're receiving for Co-Impact. What's this money going to go towards? And if you will, please tell us about the particular situation for women in the labour force. Our partnership with Co-Impact has been quite transformational. And as I mentioned, systems change has been in our DNA. But I think the past 18 or so months since we started partnering with Co-Impact as part of the design grant process was an opportunity for us to transform the way we thought of our work. And I think we use a saying internally to guide our thinking. It's shifted our work from what we need to do as Harambe alone to address the challenge of youth unemployment to what needs to be done in the system as a whole in partnership with many others. And so shifting away from delivery of programs, just scale alone to systems change, really has enabled us to think of a transformative way to shift the needle on inclusion for young people. So it's allowed us to appreciate the complexity of the systems involved. So it is insufficient for us to even connect young people to more and more opportunities every day if these larger, more complex systems aren't fundamentally shifted. So even though we had the benefits of scale and the benefits of a very slick operational model that was focused on delivery, that alone was insufficient to dent the problem of youth unemployment in the country. So the partnership has helped really deepen our thinking, make it a lot more rigorous and robust to build an evidence base for saying, how do we tackle systems change at three levels? At the systems level, and we, we look at four systems as an organization, and we look at the formal economy, which generates jobs and really drives forward growth, even though it might just absorb 20% of the labor market entrance every year, it still is a really important engine for growth for the country. We look at the informal economy, increasingly young people in South Africa in particular will need to turn to hustling for opportunities. How do we make those opportunities less volatile and less unstable and ensure that they have pathways to income generation and sustained, sustained growth? We look at government stipended programs. South Africa has, compared to many other African countries in, in particular, a strong fiscus and a really strong social grants and public works program. However, it's come under a lot of fire for, for being seen as short term and not very long lasting. How do we improve the efficiency of those programs? How do we improve the recruitment of those programs? And importantly, how do we make the impact of income and skills of those programs last for a young person. So it's not just seen as a short-term job and a short-term cash transfer. And then lastly, the system that underpins it all is the system that we call pathway management, connecting young people to opportunities at scale and reducing barriers for them. And you mentioned sort of the gender lens. I think Co-Impact has been incredibly valuable as a thought partner in deepening our approach to understanding gender. Harambe always has had a skew towards a female network. We've had over the years built a network that's 64% female, but I think it has made us a lot more intentional about the barriers that young women face. And, and these are many, and we've seen that in the research that we've done internally, women spend more money on transport, have less hours in the day to look for jobs because of household and care obligations. And when they do get to work, face issues of gender discrimination, sometimes sexual harassment, as well as pay discrimination. It's interesting, a data point that we looked at just, just even last week internally in our own network shows that there is a pay gap in every single occupation in our own network for young people for the same jobs that are being occupied by both men and women. So this is a huge issue, and we do have to be very intentional about how we address it. And so the, some of the levers that we're hoping to use to address it include 
for example, both advocating for what we call gendered social inclusion in the uh, in the workplace, avoiding gender discrimination. So, for example, we have a very targeted program with the plumbing industry, promote women plumbers, because there's a huge gender gap there and also all sorts of norms. And plumbing is a growing industry. Uh, there's a huge demand for it. Um, so we have a partnership with the plumbing industry in South Africa, as well as great partners such as Blue Lever and the National Business Institute to promote women plumbers. Another aspect of what we're trying to do is try and grow jobs in the early childhood and care economy in South Africa, knowing that by addressing the care obligation and by allowing young women to both enter the labor market and have affordable care options, they would be more able to, to retain jobs and be able to actually get back into the labor force. So those are a couple of examples of you know the things that we're doing to address the barriers that women face, but there's so much to be done. And I think the partnership with Co-Impact has enabled us to sharpen our thinking with greater rigor, but also amplify our voice to be able to advocate for women at every step. Thank you for that, Shami. As you were speaking, I was reflecting on the fact that Harambi has been around for 10 years now. You mentioned that you've got all this data from the work that you've been doing over 10 years, um, and presumably a lot of data from many of the partners that you've worked with as well. I wonder to what degree we're seeing a, a real acceleration of vocational skills training, really genuinely equipping in the way that you referenced there in the case of plumbing, people with vocational skill sets that can equip them to serve the markets that exist for, for, for these services. My own expectation is that with the increased digitalization within our economies, that these opportunities to skill um, some of our youth using digital educational tools will accelerate exponentially and therein lies, frankly, a really big business opportunity as well. I suppose I'm, I'm suggesting that Africa's education challenges and particularly the challenge, this wicked challenge that you're dealing with in, in terms of equipping Africa's youth with the skills that are in demand in the marketplace is a genuine global business opportunity. And I wonder to what degree you're observing much more appetite and interventions from entrepreneurs. In particular, I'm thinking, as I referenced, in the ed tech space coming into this field and whether you can see sort of a real acceleration and, and scale being achieved in the short term. I think you're touching on a couple of different points there. And I think one is, so if we take vocational education, I think no doubt this is an imperative for all countries to address across the African continent. Unfortunately, a lot of vocational education systems are poorly equipped, very ill outfitted in terms of what is required from a demand perspective. So there's lots of theory and very little practice. And so these systems do need to be shifted dramatically. And there's lots of money being poured into these institutions. So I think there's a huge opportunity there for us to work closely with government. I think, you know, you mentioned earlier, government is a fundamental partner for us on these endeavors because they have the scale and the reach and the depth that none of us individually is able to achieve alone. So I think there's an opportunity there. There's also a mindset shift that needs to be accompanied with that, because I think the the perception that a, a degree in, in IT versus a TVET qualification is somehow superior is ill-informed. And I think there's many sectors, many industries which could do with a huge rebrand and overhaul. TVET systems as a whole generally are definitely part of that. I would say agriculture is also a huge opportunity because I think there's, from a growth perspective, there's a huge opportunity there. But a lot of young Africans see agriculture as something that 
you know, their parents did. And it was backbreaking hard work that they don't want to ever in engage in on their own. So I think there's a couple of different strands there that we can definitely touch on. Uh, the importance of TVET to be more demand-led, the importance for us to, to partner with government to shift spending, to be more demand-led, the importance of shifting mindsets. You did mention digital, and I think this is a space that, you know, Harambe has quite a bit of experience in and deepening our work in as well. I think I mentioned and referred to this earlier, but we've seen a growth in digital jobs on the African continent on a number of different dimensions. One is in global business services, which is back office support work, whether it's customer care, desktop support for technical providers, etc., across the African continent. Those jobs are increasing rapidly. We I think are on the brink of something that could actually be much bigger if we knew how to, to prepare countries to attract investment into this space and importantly to ensure that these jobs are good jobs, are decent jobs, are inclusive jobs. So Harambe's experience in South Africa was partnering with the Department of Trade and Industry to court investors to come to South Africa to bring new jobs as well as to return jobs that had been offshored in the digital and global business services industry. We're so excited to be able to do that at a sector level. So we partnered with an industry body called the Business Process Enabling South Africa and our work to push both job growth as well as inclusive job growth was actually passed last year with the formal adoption of the sector master plan, which has embedded in it not just job growth targets and partnerships, but specific targets for inclusive hiring. So if you hired inclusively and you brought inclusive jobs into the country, you were eligible for tax subsidies. And these are huge incentives that can actually both you know, get young people employed, but also grow the economy. And we're doing something quite similar in Rwanda with the business process outsourcing industry there. So there's huge opportunities in the digital and global business services space. I think the, the trick there is to coordinate across multiple sectors and players. So it isn't enough to have some of these good ideas and investment come in. You do have to play an ecosystem role, facilitating conversations between government on the one hand, private sectors on the other, civil society organizations to help make the case for job growth, but to importantly put inclusion at the forefront of that agenda. So I think this is why systems change and being an ecosystem player is so critical because it can take a growth opportunity, but really make the, the sort of shape the ecosystem to address something on an inclusive way. Um, and, and it does take quite a bit of in, intention to, to undertake that. And maybe just one last point is you mentioned the opportunity for, for digital to impact a number of other sectors. We certainly see that, you know, you could retrofit and skill almost any skill and industry with a digital lens. So having plumbers and technicians have a digital approach to some of their work, whether it's in both business planning or managing their work on, on a technical basis, is digital is a skill. It's no longer just a, a sector. So similar to how in the future, green is going to be a a competency that cuts across many other sectors. We need to be thinking of cross-skilling and ensuring that these skills are both demand-led, but that young people are able to access these jobs with the skill that is going to be the skill of the future of work in the 21st century. Thank you for that overview. Really helpful to understand. You've spoken at some length about the work you do in ecosystem enabling and trying to promote systems change. You talked about the specific intervention in South Africa and working with government and provincial government to get the right, I think it's the right policy enabling environments, incentives and subsidies. I wonder what proportion of your work is actually exactly in that, trying to promote important changes to policy, maybe to regulation, to enable 
market systems to intervene and, and to grow to address some of these challenges that we've been speaking about? It's increasingly taking that turn. I think, you know, the first mm. 10 years were about building a delivery capability and understanding yeah. sort of the mechanics of this demand supply mismatch, you know, young people coming to the labor market and employers not being able to see them or erecting barriers that unfortunately locked people out. So building on that evidence space, we now are applying those learnings to the systems as a whole to undertake more sort of policy advocacy and, you know, shifts in systems more globally. For example, advocating with higher education institutions to adopt lighter touch skilling and credentialing for specific jobs that don't require them. So rather than qualifications being bottlenecks and gates, could they be pathways instead to allow young people to more easily access jobs in specific sectors and industries? Or on the flip side, understanding how you'd be able to promote widespread adoption of inclusive hiring practices, like the dropping of degrees, like the inclusion, for example, of a transport stipend, or like the use of different and alternative credentialing to hire young people. So it's not just scale and delivery, it's adoption at scale to such that some of these interventions and many of which were developed in, in a very lean impact and iterative model. So it's not like we design these massive policies. They're sometimes quite small and rapidly have an impact. For example, we did a study in partnership with Oxford and the World Bank to, to look at the impact of a reference letter as well as a skills certificate on the employability of a young person. So if a young person came out of a training program with a skills certificate, their employability and ability to earn greater income jumped dramatically, upwards of 17 percentage points. So yeah. in this particular intervention, it's a tiny one, is being adopted, for example, by the Western Cape government, such that jobs that are being enabled and pathwayed there have skills certificates at the end of them. Similarly, with reference letters, those could have a dramatic impact on the employability of a young person. So some of these innovations are small, but they're evidence-based. And they're highly impactful, but if adopted at scale, could have a systems-wide impact to break barriers for young people. Great. Well, that's good to hear. Shami, you gave us the example earlier of the intervention that you encouraged around just a simple practical example of a, a transport stipend, how providing that has made opportunities for people who may have been qualified but not able to get to work available to them. A very practical example of the work that you're doing to bring more inclusivity into the workforce. Are there other practical examples you could give us that have really been quite simple, straightforward, but have made a meaningful difference at scale? Sure. Another great example of that would be looking at the cost of data of a site. So, for example, I mentioned that our Mobi site is data free as well as free of cost. Looking at how much whatever opportunity you have, say you have a scholarship application or a job site, understanding how much data it costs to actually get onto that site is pretty important, especially if you're designing a program or an intervention that is or young people that are excluded, um, they pay a significant amount on data charges. And many companies, many organizations don't realize that. And it ends up being prohibitive for young people to access these sites. We realized that quite early on that data was a significant blocker. So we made our site data free. We try and advocate for other job sites, for example, to drop data charges or to streamline their application process. It's a simple thing, but if you have a lengthy application process with lots of requirements for attachments, young people don't have money for that. They actually have to spend airtime and data money to load those. So looking at how much a site costs, 
for a young person to actually access an opportunity is pretty important. So not only do we do that internally, the partners that we work with, we try and advocate for them to drop data costs. And now we're trying to actually advocate for this at a systems wide level, such that all recruitment and jobs portals could be data free for young people because that's a significant barrier. So that's just a simple example. I mean, there's many others. We're trying to also look at location. We we ask the young person on our platforms where they live in order to be able to better suggest opportunities to them that are close to them. So we do geospatial matching. Oftentimes opportunities may not be close to them, but we're able to actually better now suggest opportunities based on is it within walking distance. So, you know, we, we pathwayed nearly 300,000 teacher assistants to the Department of Basic Education's teaching assistant program last year. And we saw that at least 50% of them were within walking distance of where they lived. So it actually makes a huge difference because it reduces costs for the young person in terms of transport, it reduces time, and it helps them potentially access an opportunity close to home. So these are small sort of interventions, but unbeknownst to us, there are barriers that are erected in front of a young person every single day. And I think having your eye open to these and having an approach that helps design innovative, impactful interventions that can help reduce these barriers is, is pretty much what Harambe is about. I want to ask you a little bit about the future. Obviously, your work is very focused on, on South Africa, and there's a big challenge um, to overcome there. I think South Africa has one of the highest youth unemployment rates in the world. You've got this grant now that's just been approved by CoImpact. You're going to be very busy working on, on systems change in South Africa and, and those interventions that you reference. But does Harambi have ambitions beyond South Africa? What's the next three to five years look like for Harambi? Sure, we have a presence in Rwanda, which was launched three and a half years ago. And we are doing we work there, very similar work. We focused specifically in Rwanda on partnerships with the government through the Rwanda Development Board, as well as the Ministry of Youth to grow the BPO, the, the Global Business Services and Business Process Outsourcing Industry in, in Rwanda. In fact, I'm in Rwanda the week of March 8th to help build the business case for Rwanda as a, a destination for global business services, specifically to employ young people. So we're building the business case there. We're trying to scale up young people and train them to get access to these jobs, which are on the horizon. We don't have ambitions to scale operationally in other spaces, although we are constantly in conversation with both governments on the one hand, as well as employer partners, importantly, to understand how do you hire inclusively across continents. So I think in the next few years, what we probably will do is package some of the learnings and lessons to be more of an advisor to both employers in the private sector, as well as government in many countries across the African continent to build business cases for sectors for new jobs, but importantly for inclusive hiring, taking some of the lessons that we've learned in breaking barriers for, for young people in South Africa. That's great to hear. I'm wondering if I'm a prospective employer, I've, I've acquired a mining license in an African mining jurisdiction, and we're going to be moving into uh, exploration, construction, and development of a mine. Can I approach you to help me build out a, an inclusive employment value chain? Is that something that you're capacitated to help me with? Yes, I mean, I think definitely. I, I think that's um, not quite in our wheelhouse quite yet, um, but yeah. it is something that we have done for specific industries. So we have partnered with my colleague, Evan Jones, who's our group strategy director, um, who has extensive experience in the business process outsourcing industry, and myself have been in conversations with people in the business processing industry 
for when they are interested in going to say a country like Ghana or Kenya to understand how to hire inclusively. We haven't quite built that out quite yet, but I think in the future, I think that's where our capacity will lead us in terms of being able to advise sectors, industries, and governments in terms of inclusive hiring. A lesson that we have learned though, I think is there is a trade-off between breadth and depth. So I think we have focused on depth in South Africa versus scaling up operationally globally, primarily because we are honing what we're doing there. We're developing sort of the, the real tools and understanding the big levers that Im impact employment globally. But once we have the distilled learnings, we're more than happy to be able to share that with sectors, employers, governments across the continent. It's really, really helpful to understand. And I've understood now that a great deal of emphasis from a sector perspective is on the business services, digital um, you mentioned also agri and agro-processing and care and social economy, I think you said as well, mm -hmm. where presumably low-hanging fruits in terms of equipping youth in particular with the skills that those industries demand. And, and Africa having, or many of our geographies, South Africa in particular, having some comparative advantage globally in these areas, which is of mm -hmm. course important. We need our industries to be competitive if they're to grow sustainably. Well, I feel like we've had a real tour de force. It's been fascinating to hear you, and you've touched on so many different interventions. It's very apparent that Harambi plays a critical role as an ecosystem enabler, working with governments in the way that you've referenced, both national and local level, the great examples you gave us from South Africa, but with industry too, civil society organizations, and an impressive number of youth, I think over 2 million youth in South Africa who you have contact with. It's fantastic work that you're engaged with. And now you've got additional support, I know, through the grant from CoImpact that is going to enable you to accelerate some of the great work that you're doing. I traditionally invite our guests to tell us what they're reading, Shami. And I'm going to ask you that. But actually, someone told me that you love music and that not only do you listen to music, but that you are a singer-songwriter too. So I can't leave this interview without asking about your passion for music, how you involve that, or even if you do involve that in some of your work. So let's start with music, if we may. Thanks, Marcus. Indeed, yes, I've, I've kind of been a musician part-time pretty much throughout my life. I've dabbled in music, but I think the pandemic forced me to find different ways of expression. And in particular, because I actually last year was a very difficult year personally, and I'd lost quite a few loved ones over the course of the year. And I turned to music for solace and joy. And I ended up finding that music was sort of the vehicle through which I could express both grief, but also connect with people for whom this was also a tough time and remains a tough time, I think, for many of us. So it was really sort of an approach to both express deep emotions and connect with others and cope with the difficult time. So I started singing and um, composing music over the course of last year, wrote some songs for people that I'd lost and sing a variety of genres, but mostly jazz and uh, sing in, in some both European languages as well as local languages on the African continent. So it's, it's just been a great joy to be able to perform and sing in this time of quite a bit of stress, I think, and it helps connect and both, both connect to other people, but possibly find expression of, of deep emotions. Oh, great. And what are you reading? I am reading a couple of books. The, the book's kind of top of my shelf right now is the book by uh, Catherine May. It's called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. And as I mentioned, I think this has been a trying time for all of us. It's a great book because I think it allows you to understand the power of introspection and rest and silence in order to be able to address some of the big challenges that we're facing in our world today. So I think the pandemic has sharpened focus on some of these things and both in terms of the tools and techniques that we can use to help 
combat the bigger issues, but I think taking care of oneself and being able to rest and retreat in order to then go out and solve these tricky problems is proving an important lesson for me to learn. Well, Shami, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for the work that you do, vital work. You're really at the vanguard working with multiple partners in helping to build a society that works powered by the potential of, of African youth. It's critically important work. I'm delighted to see that you're, you're getting the support from global foundations like CoImpact, but collaboration with, with big industry, I know, and trust and confidence in terms of the relationship that, uh, that I know you have with the South African presidency and you referred us to as well as provincial governments in South Africa. So really great work. And thank you for sharing that with us today. Such a pleasure, Marcus. Thank you for the opportunity. It's always great to speak to others. And thank you very much for the platform. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.